Good morning, Palm Vista. What a beautiful Sunday to be together. Amen. Um, well, if you're a guest with us this morning, my name is David Bush. Uh, I'm one of the pastors here at Palm Vista, and it's my privilege uh, to preach God's word to you. The text this morning, uh, we're going to be studying together is 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 2 through 16. 2 Corinthians 7, 2 through 16. And this morning, we're continuing our sermon series in the book of 2 Corinthians entitled Strength and Weakness. Last week, um, Paul had been uh, discussing the danger of friendship with the world and exhorted the Corinthians to remember who and whose they are uh, and challenge them to turn away uh, from this world. Today's text here in 2 Corinthians 7, Paul moves from addressing those in Corinthians who had been opposing him Um, And now he's going to encourage the majority of the church who um, are now walking in repentance and humility. And Paul, Titus, and the believers in Corinth are going to demonstrate for us what it means, what it looks like uh, to cultivate a community that rejoices in repentance. To cultivate a community that rejoices in repentance. So turn, if you would, with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Chapter 7, uh, verses 2 through 16. Hear the word of the Lord. Make room in your hearts for us. We have wronged no one. We have corrupted no one. We've taken advantage of no one. I do not say this to condemn you, for I said before that you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. I'm acting with great boldness towards you. I have great pride in you. I'm filled with comfort. In all our affliction, I'm overflowing with joy. For even when we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest. But we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear within. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus. And not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted by you. As he told us of your longing, of your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced still more. For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I did not regret it. Though I did regret it, for I see that the letter grieved you, though only for a little while. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Whereas worldly grief produces death. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point, you have proved yourselves innocent in the matter. So although I wrote to you, it was not for the sake of the one who did wrong, nor for the sake of the one who suffered the wrong, but in order that your earnestness for us might be revealed to you in the sight of God. Therefore, we are comforted. And besides our own comfort, we rejoiced still more at the joy of Titus, because his spirit has been refreshed by all of you. For whatever boasts I made to him about you, I was not put to shame. But just as everything we said to you is true, so also all our boasting before Titus has proved true. And, in, and his affection for you is even greater as he remembers the obedience of you all. How you received him with fear and trembling. I rejoice because I have complete confidence in you. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we come before you this morning seeking um, to hear from you. We ask this morning that that you would um, speak clearly to us through your word. Lord, if there are some this morning who need 
um, to experience, perhaps for the first time, godly grief leading to repentance. God, would you give that gift this morning? Would you also give us the gift of joy and comfort, courage in the face of suffering as we, as we rejoice in the gift of repentance and, uh, that you give to your church? Stir your people this morning, Lord. May we be a community that rejoices in repentance. And may your word do that work this morning. Do what it does best. Uh, speak to us, Lord, words uh, that grieve us deeply, that we might rejoice eternally, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it's summer. Uh, I grew up going to summer camp. Anyone here grow up going to summer camp where you stay away for a week? Yeah, at summer camp, they always have games that you play, all kinds of crazy, wild games. We've done that with our youth. Um, and they're, one of my favorite camp games that's just a standard game, we played it for years, is tug of war. You guys like tug of war? You know, you have the, the big old wrong rope, you divide everybody up in two teams, and uh, you've always got that one, the big guy is the anchor, right? He wraps the rope around him three or four times and just digs his feet in and sits down. Uh, and then you've got everybody else who grabs on, you kind of alternate sides, there's all the techniques. Uh, and the point is you try to pull that rope to pull the other team over to your side and hope that you don't get knocked over and pulled to the other side. And, um, and the worst thing when you're playing tug of war is when you start losing, uh, and you can feel yourself dragging, you're trying with all your might, and your feet are slipping, and then you can see your teammates in front of you, they start to like, give up, let go of the rope, or they, they stop pulling hard, uh, and it's, it's discouraging. Uh, you're still pulling with all your might, but you can, you can see the battle is not going your way. Uh, well, in our text this morning, Paul, he's been pulling hard on the rope. Uh, he's been pulling with all his might, uh, but the Corinthians had let go. Uh, they'd given up. They'd stopped fighting. They'd stopped pursuing holiness, stopped fighting for righteousness. Uh, and it had been quite discouraging for the church. The church at large, for Paul and the church in Galatia, the church where he is as well, um, they, they had been discouraged by that. But now this letter comes because the Corinthians have come back. Uh, they put their hands back on the rope. They've started pulling together. Now with Paul, their, their feet are dug in and they're engaged once again in the work of ministry. And Paul, he is rejoicing. He is overfilled with joy, rejoicing at their repentance, rejoicing at their return. The main idea of today's text, the thesis of this sermon, is to cultivate a community that rejoices in repentance. Like Paul, to cultivate a community that rejoices in repentance. And the first point is to rejoice in the repentance of others. See, Paul, he begins our text with an appeal to those repentant believers in Corinth asking, or asking for more of their affection. He's reminding them that all he wants from them is their endurance in the faith. Look with me at verse 2. He says, Make room in your hearts for us, for we have wronged no one, we've corrupted no one, take advantage of no one. I don't say this to condemn you, for I said before that you are in our hearts. He's, he's got an affection for them. He wants their affection back, to die together and to live together. I'm acting in great boldness towards you. I have great pride in you. I'm filled with comfort. In all our affliction, I'm overflowing with joy. See, Paul's great concern for the Corinthians was their eternal endurance, their eternal endurance. This section, starting here in verse Two and continuing on through chapter 9 of 2 Corinthians has a very different tone from what we've been reading thus far. Uh, going here forward, it's very warm and pastoral, full of Paul's expressions of, uh, of confidence and affection for the true sheep in Corinth. And he's giving these assurances, he's giving this comfort because he wants them to remain assured, to know that his only goal is their spiritual good, their eternal spiritual good. Good. In just a moment, in this next text, uh, Paul's going to begin exhorting them to give to the offering that's going to go back to the saints in Jerusalem. Uh, and he wants them to know that he's not asking them for this for himself, uh, to gain anything from them. He's never asked anything from them, but for their own spiritual well-being and good. And so we ask them to make room in their hearts for himself, for the other apostles, for the, the church uh, as well in Macedonia. To make room because there is a, already a mutual affection. To open up. Give us more of your affection. Give me more of yourself. More of your heart. Make more room for me. Why? Because <laughs> he wants to endure with them. He wants to make it to the end. Notice the goal Paul lays out 
for his affection for them at the end of verse 3. He says, I said before that you are in our hearts. Why? To die together and to live together. It's a curious way to phrase that. Usually that idiom goes that we might live together, that we might die together, that we might last to the end of life. But Paul flips the idiom here. He says that we might die together and that we might live together. Why? He's wanting to endure until death, to thrive until death, that they might live not now but forever together. Paul's looking for an eternal inheritance with the Corinthians. He wants to share with them eternal life together, not just this life. He wants something that's going to last forever. Paul's horizon for relationship with the church in Corinth stretches beyond the end of this life. He's building forward to a joy, to a comfort, to an endurance, to a life that will outlast this earth. He made this clear in his letter to Timothy, why he endures in suffering. Uh, 2 Timothy 2, he says, Therefore I endure everything. Why? For the sake of the elect. Why? That they may also obtain the salvation that is in Jesus Christ with eternal glory. That's why he suffers. That's why he endures. The saying is trustworthy for we have died with him. We will also live with him. That's that same phrasing. We will die and we will live. If we endure, we will also reign with him. This is what Paul's ambition is for his friends in Corinth. It's not just that their life now will be comfortable. Not just that their standard of living will increase a little bit at a time until they die. No, his hope for them is that their eternal destiny will be secure and have a foundation that is firm. He wants to flourish with them spiritually in this life and endure with them into the life to come. This word comfort that we find in our text, it's used seven times in this passage. It's a lot. It it carries a deeper meaning than just the kind of comfort you might give to a sick child. Uh, We've been doing a lot of that the last week. We've had four vomiting children in our house last weekend. uh, And there was a lot of comfort being given to those kids. uh, Holding hair, rubbing backs, bringing water. Um, Certainly that's implied in this idea of comfort, but it's it's more than that. Um, It it carries uh, the idea of emboldening someone in their belief. This comfort carries this idea of emboldening them into a course of action they've, they've, they've set themselves to. It has the idea of giving, sharing your courage with someone else. Helping them to overcome something difficult and stay the course. It's like, a, it's like when you're pulling and you hear someone on the back of the rope saying, don't give up, lean in, come on, keep pulling. They're giving comfort. On three pull, one, two, three, we all pull together. That's that's the comfort that Paul is speaking of. It's this this mutual courage, this sharing of affection, sharing of mission, sharing of goal, reminding each other where we're going, that we're going to get there. Don't give up. Don't stop. Don't let go. Hang on with me. It's a camaraderie, a shared purchase, a mutual uh, purpose, a mutual affection, and shared courage. Paul says in the end of verse 4, he's filled with this kind of comfort, this kind of courage, this this mutual affection and camaraderie, this purpose that they have together, this purpose to die together, that they might live together, to endure and to flourish. That's his deepest desire for the Corinthians. Paul's also concerned about his own endurance. Paul's rejoicing in their repentance for the sake of their endurance, but also for his um, look with me in verse 5. It says, For even when we came to Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were afflicted at every turn. That's a serious word. Fighting without and fear within. Paul and his co-workers in Macedonia, they were suffering from all kinds of physical and emotional opposition. Everywhere they turned was difficulty. More conflict. Uh, more reasons to fear, burnout looming on the horizon. They were oppressed and, and opposed everywhere. I'm sure there were a lot more difficult letters that he wrote than the one to the Corinthians. Paul's exhausted. And since his last letter to the Corinthians, um, Paul's also been concerned about the well-being of Titus. Um, Titus had left Corinth several months earlier, or he left, not Corinth, he left for Corinth several months earlier. Um, and the text implies that, Paul, that Titus was somewhat skeptical and discouraged when he left bringing this letter. Paul had to convince him to go with promises about the Corinthians' repentance. And in chapter 2 of this uh, book, Paul explained it was actually his anxiety, his concern about Titus and the state of the Corinthians was part of what led him uh, and pushed him forward to go to Macedonia where he is now. 
But now in our text, Paul's anxiety, Paul's affliction, his concern and worry, his fighting without and fear within has been turned to comfort, to courage and joy. He says, I'm acting with great boldness towards you and great pride to you. I'm filled with comfort. Why? In all our affliction, I'm overflowing with joy. He's filled with joy now. He's filled with overflowing joy. In verse 4, that's overabounding joy. This joy as well is used all through our text. Uh, Verse 7, so that I rejoiced all the more. In verse 9, I rejoice. 13, we rejoice still at the joy of Titus. And he ends in verse 16, I rejoice. Paul's joy, the joy of the other apostles, the joy of the whole community of faith, can't be contained. It just spills over out of Paul. It, it outpours. He can't contain it. It's overabounding. It's overflowing. It spills out onto his parchment. spills out into his lips. He is thrilled and energized in a time of opposition and suffering. Why? Because of the repentance of the Corinthians. That's what led him to this joy. In verse 6, he says, But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us, how? By the coming of Titus. What was it about Titus' coming that comforted him? Not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted by you, as he told us of your longing, of your mourning, of your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced all the more. See, Titus, he had returned with news that the obstinate, unaccountable Christians in Corinth, the ones who had let go of the rope, had been transformed by God into believers filled with passion and fresh zeal for the mission. They were reengaged with the truth. They were saddened by the false teaching that they had until just recently been tolerating, longing to be restored to relationship with Paul and with the rest of the Christian community. Their repentance had produced in Titus reinvigoration as well. Notice Titus, now he was re-engaged, re-strengthened, given fresh courage, fresh hope, fresh excitement, ready to pull again too. The Corinthians had given their comfort to Titus who brought it back to Paul and it spread across the Christian community. The repentance of this one little church had these reverberating impacts across the globe. How comforting, how exciting, how remarkable. Paul's joy was found in the growing maturity, in the growing zeal of the people, of the Christians in Corinth for Christ. It wasn't about for him. For Paul, it wasn't about their um, love of Paul. It wasn't about necessarily, first and foremost, their relationship to him. It was about what his, their break in relationship with Paul meant about their relationship with God. About what that fracture in the community of Christ said about God and their relationship to him. Paul is passionate about the maturity, about the repentance, about the joy of the Corinthians. And he's passionate about making it together to the finish line and flourishing along the way. Paul makes it clear that this encouragement, this fresh hope, this fresh joy that he received from the repentance, um, its source is God. He says, fighting without and fear within. And then verse 6 he says, but God, God who comforts the downcast. God is the one who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus. Paul was afflicted. Paul was discouraged. Paul was oppressed and afraid. Paul was not powerful, but was weak. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted Paul by the repentance of the Corinthians and by the comfort that Titus brought back to Paul. In our weakness, in our discouragement, God is the God of power and comfort. Isn't that a joy to us, church? Isn't that a glorious truth? (laughs) See, our goal in this life isn't to reach a state of maturity and, um, and holiness such that we no longer need to go to God for comfort. Um, it's not like we're saved by grace and the mercy of God and then we just gradually mature in the faith until we no longer really need his intervention day by day. Church, we are growing in maturity as we grow in our awareness of our desperate need for God daily for comfort and courage and endurance. Amen? 
This is, this is a walk that we walk day by day, going daily, morning, afternoon, and evening to the fountain of grace, crying out for more mercy. A mature Christian is one not that no longer needs to go to Christ for mercy, one that knows he needs it more than anyone else. We are daily and desperately needy for God's comfort. We don't reach the place of Paul and, oh, now I'm a mature apostle. I don't need Jesus anymore. No, he was weak, and he knew it, but he knew where to go. It was to God. God is the one who supplies comfort. God is the one who fills us in our times of exhaustion and opposition and despair and depression. It is Christ. It is God who is the supply of comfort that will never run dry. Where's your comfort this morning? Where do you run in those times of despair? Where are you going for your fresh hope, for your fresh courage? Is it to God? Is it to the the arms of Christ? Is it the foot of the cross where mercy is overabounding and never-ending? In our text today, the way that God supplied comfort to Paul, it was through his body, through the church, by the coming of Titus. Paul's comfort in a time of suffering and despair didn't come from deeper self-revelation, but from the delight in the spiritual well-being of Titus and the church in Corinth. See, church, God made us to flourish in community. He made you for community, not to be all on your own out there trying to figure it out, but to be part of God's community so that when we are weak, the repentance and the spiritual flourishing of our brothers and sisters in Christ encourages us and reinvigorates us to keep going. That we might speak to one another words of comfort, remind each other of that gospel grace that Christ has poured out for us when we most desperately need it. We all have seasons of doubt. We all have seasons of discouragement. And we need one another to remind each other, grab back on the rope, pull. It's okay. We're going to make it. We're designed for community, church. We're built for it. In our text, Paul, he, he, he blurs the lines in his language here between himself as an individual and his role as a member of the community of faith. Look with me for a second the way Paul flips back and forth between the singular and plural all through this text. It's, it's honestly quite disorienting. Look at just the first few verses. He says, make room in your hearts for us. We have wronged no one. We have corrupted no one. We have taken advantage of no one. I do not say this to condemn you. For I said before that you were in our hearts to die together and live together. I am acting with great boldness towards you. I have great pride. I am filled with comfort. In all our affliction, I am filled with great joy. And he goes back and forth all through this text. I, we, I, we, I, we. Why? Because Paul sees himself as a member of this community of Christ. He's an individual, absolutely, but he's also a part of this body. So what does that mean? Well, when we are ensnared in sin as Christians, when we are, when we are discouraged and downcast, when we are uh, giving ourselves over to the world, uh, the whole community of Christ suffers. Paul, the church in Macedonia, they all suffered as a result of the Corinthians' embrace of sin. But it also means that when we repent, when there's growth and flourishing, the whole community of Christ benefits. They're all filled with fresh joy, fresh faith, fresh Courage. I experience this every time Corey uh, comes back from overseas and gives us a report of what God is doing throughout the globe. When he shares with us about the work of God in Africa and the planting of churches and the way the gospel is spreading and advancing uh, in that nation across that continent, it reinvigorates me. It excites me. It gives me perspective on my own troubles and discouragements, doesn't it? I'm started challenged with zeal on Friday night when we met as men, and I'm, I'm hearing uh, the men share about God's work in their lives, where they want to grow, where God is convicting them of sin and, and, and challenging them to, to re-engage. Oh, it, it fills me with fresh hope, fresh courage. It reinvigorates me. I'm re-envisioned to, to endure well, to make it to the end, that we're, we're not alone in this church. What a source of courage and joy. I'm excited, church, about this afternoon. I'm excited about this car wash and And right out here, praying for for this community, praying for people who walk through these doors looking for a free car wash, and I pray they get the free gift of grace and mercy in Christ Jesus. I'm praying that we see repentance, godly grief that leads to repentance and joy, and we get to celebrate and reinvigorate and re-envision as a church as we see brand new believers sitting in these seats. That's the gift of God to the church for all of us. Our deepest Joy in this life comes when we live for what God delights in. And he loves his church. 
flawed and broken as it is, he loves us and he died to purchase a people for himself. Jesus taught us that there's a celebration not just on this earth, but there's a celebration in heaven. Every time a wandering sheep returns to the shepherd, we want to have that kind of joy. We want to be a community that, that we want to cultivate a community that rejoices in repentance. The repentance of others. And point two, rejoice in your own repentance. As you guys know, I broke my arm back in February. Um, fell off a mountain bike, ended up in the ER. And the, uh, the doctor there is a, a lady, and she had to, I won't be graphic, but she had to put the bones back in place uh, before she could splint my arm. And she was very reluctant. Like, she was doing it, but not, like, wholeheartedly, you know, which made it a lot worse because then it took a long time. <laughs> so I found myself actually encouraging them. It's okay. I know, I know it hurts. Please don't apologize. Just pull, okay? Uh, and it was, it, was, it was this whole process of having to actually cause more pain in order to put my arm back into place. Um, and then a, a few weeks later, or a few weeks, a few days later, I came back, and the surgeon put plates and pins and had to actually cut things and open things up and, and, and permanently fix the fracture that had been broken uh, by my rebellious mountain bike. And, um, and in Corinth, Paul, he was acting like a spiritual surgeon. Uh, months earlier, Paul had sent them a, later that, a letter that was quite painful but necessary for the Corinthians' spiritual health. Read in verse 8. He says, For even if, you, even if I made you grieve by my letter, this letter hurt them. I do not regret it, though I did regret it, for I see that my letter grieved you, though only for a little while. In, be, in between what we call First and Second Corinthians, there was a first and a half Corinthians that we don't have. Uh, it's, it's the tearful letter that Paul speaks of that he sent to the church uh, challenging them to stop enabling sin and false teaching by tolerating it in the church. And this letter, it was, it was hard for Paul to write. It was difficult. It caused him tears. It made him grieve and even briefly regret whether he should have even written it. Uh, Paul didn't want to insult his friends. He didn't want to offend them or humiliate them. Or worse yet, he didn't want to push them to uh, further into the arms of the false teachers uh, through his offense of them. But Paul, more than anything else, longed for true restoration of community with the Corinthians. And so he was willing to risk even the relational discomfort of a further break in his friendship with them for the sake of their spiritual, eternal well-being. Notice Paul's here not just someone who simply says it like he is, says it like it is. He's not, he's not just going around uh, correcting anybody who offends him, correcting everybody around him and just spewing out correction left and right without regret. No, Paul, this was difficult for him. It's, a, it's correction that's built on deep affection and concern for their souls. Paul cares about the Corinthian church. And he had given them a correction that's difficult to do because when you correct this way, correct the way Paul did with the Corinthians, it's just as painful or at least quite painful for the one giving the correction as the one receiving it. But Proverbs 27, 6 says, faithful are the wounds of a friend. And Paul has been a faithful friend, willing to risk even the friendship itself for the sake of the eternal benefit of their souls. Look, if you have a friend like this, church, it's a reason to rejoice. If you are a friend like this, it causes me to rejoice. I hope we are a church. I hope we continue to cultivate a community at Palm Vista uh, where we are a people who care enough about each other's souls, who have such a deep affection and love towards one another that we are willing to dis risk the discomfort and awkwardness of correction for the sake of the eternal health and endurance of the bride of Christ. Not because people annoy us or irritate us, but because we care about their soul. It comes with affection and assurance and love. Even though Paul's letter caused grief to the Corinthians, they were pained by the rebuke. Praise the Lord, it didn't end with grief. But it produced for them and for the whole community of Christ joy and freedom from regret. Look at verse 9. He says, as it is, I rejoice. I rejoice. Not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. Oh, the Corinthians, they felt a godly grief so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces repentance that leads to what? 
salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. Paul sets up in contrast godly grief with worldly grief. What is, what is worldly grief? Well, Paul, for Paul, worldly grief is, is sorrow over sin, but sorrow over sin that's pointed inward and downward. It's, it's focused, first and foremost, primarily on the immediate consequences of my sin. And the fact that my actions, my choices, my sin, um, have meant that I will now have to miss out on something in this world that I love. Worldly grief is a normal, it's a natural response to discipline. It's normal to mourn the fact that my sin has been exposed, that I've been um, exposed in my weakness, to grieve over the painful consequences that come as a result. But Paul says that this kind of natural, normal, this worldly grief, this kind of sorrow on its own, it it leads to death. Left to itself, it leads only to death because at the end of the day, sorrow over sin that's focused only on self, how my sin affects me, it only perpetuates the death-producing desires to live for self instead of Christ that produced the sin in the first place. Listen to that. That sin that focuses only on self, it only perpetuates the death-producing desire to live for self instead of Christ that produced the sin in the first place. Worldly grief may actually even result in changed external behaviors, but on its own, it does nothing, nothing to change the heart's allegiance to self over Christ. And that is what ends in death. But godly grief, the grief experienced by the Corinthians, is different. It produces repentance, leading to salvation without regret. Why? Because godly grief is different in its orientation and origin. Godly grief's orientation is upward and outward. It's concerned First and foremost, not with how my sin affects me, but with the way my sin offends and blasphemes God. It begins first and foremost with a vision of God's holiness, with God's honor, and is filled with sorrow at the deeply perverse and wicked nature of my heart. The fact that I would sin against a God like this. It goes beyond the simple, immediate, physical consequences of my sin and is burdened with the eternal significance of what my sin says about my relationship to God. My heart's commitments to live in opposition to God and to live for self apart from him. And it's ready to take whatever action, to embrace whatever humiliation is required to restore the relationship first and foremost with our creator God. It's captured in the prayer of King David when he's confronted about his sin of murder and adultery. And what does David say? He says, against you and only you have I sinned and done what is evil in, my, in their sight, O God. David's concern isn't first and foremost even how his sin affected others, but first how it affected God and what it says about his relationship with the Lord. Godly grief's orientation is upward towards God and, and outward producing repentance. See, the grief, that this kind of godly grief, it's not an end in itself. It's the beginning, and it moves a sinner forward to repentance. Repentance is the act of, of turning, the act of turning and returning to the Lord, turning from sin and returning to the lover of our souls. And Paul provides a sevenfold description of the repentance of the Corinthians that is specific and fervent. Look in verse 11. There's seven things he mentions here. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you. Also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point, you've proved yourself innocent in the matter. See, their godly grief, their awareness of their sin against God, first and foremost, has produced in them a serious desire to make things right. This is not wallowing in self-pity and despair about the state of their hearts. No, it's a, it's a movement to a fresh commitment to obey God, to walk in obedience to him, no longer willing to tolerate the sin that they had only so recently uh, been just fine with. And their repentance is specific to the sins that they were embracing. It says they were earnestness, this eagerness, diligence, and zeal to clear their names, not through words only, but actions. It's in contrast to the uh, passivity that they had so recently experienced towards this sin. Indignation. 
They were no longer indifferent, but they were indignant, uh, fired up uh, about the sin and the false teachers in the church. It's not indignation towards Paul, but towards the sin that they had recently tolerated. What fear? Fear of God. What longing? Longing for righteousness. Zeal for what is true and right. What punishment? The CSB says, what justice? Instead of tolerating the sin, they are disciplining it, that those who are participating in sin might repent and be restored to the church. And everything, they've proven themselves innocent. Corinthians were eager to demonstrate the validity of their faith by putting it into their feet and walking out the truths that they believed. Let me ask you, church, when you're confronted with sin, what's the major note for you? Is it worldly grief or godly grief that leads to specific and fervent repentance? There's nothing half-hearted about the Corinthians' repentance here. No saving face, no attempt to kind of give context to what was going on and why. Well, you know, it wasn't exactly as bad as it looks, Paul. Uh, They weren't trying to explain the circumstances or minimize or blame shift or or explain how they weren't really as bad as some other people in the church. No, they, they they were completely exposed because they knew that they were completely exposed, not before Paul, but before God. And they were ready to do whatever it takes to walk in obedience, with zeal and passion, to conform their lives to the will of the living God. What a joyous gift to be given. What a joyous gift to be given to the Corinthians and also to the whole church. Why? Because the product of their repentance, the outcome, was glorious, joy-producing fruit for them and for the whole community of faith. Relationships that had been broken by their sin and indifference to sin were now restored. And new relationships had taken root and begun to flourish. In verses 12 through 13, Paul explains that the purpose for writing to the Corinthians had been fulfilled. That the Corinthians' earnestness, their zeal and affection for obedience had been restored and their eagerness, their earnestness uh, for Paul and for the rest of God's people that had been hidden before had now been revealed to the Corinthians before God's face so that now their affection for Paul, their affection for the rest of the church community had been restored and these relationships that had been broken had been made new. And then verse 3, 13, Paul returns to the story of Titus, this, this one uh, who had left discouraged and uh, cynical about the Corinthians' obedience had been won over by their zealous repentance. Look at me in verse 13. He says, Besides our own comfort, we rejoice still more at the joy of Titus, because his spirit had been refreshed by you all. For whatever boasts I made about him to you, I was not put to shame. For just as in everything we said to you was true, so also our boasting before Titus has proved true. Oh, this is beautiful, church. Look at this new, restored relationship with Titus. And his affection for you is even greater. As he remembers the obedience of, his all, of you all, how you received him with fear, and trembling. Oh, I rejoice because I have great, a complete confidence in you. Paul had had to convince Titus to go to Corinth. He had to promise him that these Gentiles would respond with repentance. But now, Titus has seen their zeal. He's seen their humility firsthand. He's experienced the fruit of their sincere repentance, their fear and trembling as they were humbled before God at his arrival. And he has returned refreshed and filled with new affection for the Corinthians. The Corinthians didn't embarrass Paul, but they proved his word to be true. And not only has their love and relationship with Paul and the apostles been restored, they gained another true friend in Titus. And so Paul rejoices And the church rejoices. What a remarkable transformation. What a joy to see the community of Christ's people restored to wholeness and joy. Strengthened and expanded through the gift of godly grief and repentance. Repentance whose orientation is upward toward God and and outward. Producing fervent, heart-driven obedience that results in restored relationships. Repentance orientation is upward, but true repentance also has a different origin than earthly grief and sorrow. True repentance has its origin in God. 
So worldly grief's origin is in just the natural consequences of our sin. Godly grief, its origin is in God. It's not normal. It's not natural. It's not an expected or simply natural outcome of being confronted. Oh, it is the gift of a generous and merciful God. When Paul describes the Corinthians as receiving Titus with fear and trembling in verse 15, this is very unusual and specific language that Paul is using. Paul's the only one who uses that specific language in the New Testament. And it, it's, it's very likely that Paul is referencing Isaiah 19. Isaiah 19 is a prophecy um, where Isaiah, Isaiah prophesies about a day when Egypt, you know Egypt, the enemies of Israel, the ones who kept them in slavery, Egypt, this heathen nation. Well, Isaiah prophesies that Egypt will respond with fear and trembling, the same language, to the knowledge of God's coming judgment. But in this prophecy, Egypt, God's punishment of Egypt is not going to be to destroy them, but to bring them into the people of God. It's remarkable. Listen how this prophecy ends. Isaiah 19, 21. It says, And the Lord will make himself known to the Egyptians, and the Egyptians will know the Lord in that day and worship with sacrifice and offering. How remarkable. And they will make vows to the Lord and perform them. And the Lord will strike Egypt. Striking? Oh. And healing. And they will return to the Lord. What a statement. And he will listen to their pleas of mercy and Heal them. These are God's enemies. This is Egypt. These are the Gentiles outside of God's people. And to God's enemies, the very one who kept his people in slavery for hundreds of years will repent and turn to the Lord with fear and trembling and he will heal them and include them in the second exodus. Praise the Lord that he does this to his enemies. This is what Paul is speaking of when he says that these Corinthians has repented with fear and trembling. He's telling them, you are like Egypt. You are part of that prophecy. You are part of that second exodus. You are part of God's people now. You Gentiles in Corinth have been grafted into God's people by joy and repentance that you might be part of God's new kingdom to live together, to die together, and then live forever. Praise Jesus. What an incredible promise. What a reason for rejoicing. The repentance of the Corinthians and your repentance, Palm Vista, it's a gift from God. And it's evidence that God has chosen you to bring you into his people. You who were once his enemy, you were once against God, your heart committed to self and self only, have now been broken that you might rejoice in God and live for him. What a joy and a blessing and a reason to sing. We are part of his second exodus. When Christ comes, when he returns to lead his people out of exile and slavery on this earth and leads us into the eternal promised land that we might live with him forever, we will be part of that people. And your repentance is evidence that he's doing that in your life. God's discipline is his kindness. Hebrews 12 teaches us that the presence of God's discipline, that godly grief and brokenness over sin that sees the disparity between how holy God is and how wicked I am, that that grief that leads us to specific and fervent repentance and joy is evidence in Hebrews that you are a child of God. God is treating you as sons and daughters. When he disciplines you, it's a joy and a delight and a reason for rejoicing. What a loving God that he disciplines his children. The greatest curse in scripture is that God would leave you to your sin. The gift of godly grief and repentance doesn't stay with grief. It leads to salvation without regret. That's because that godly grief and repentance leads us to seek mercy in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. We turn to Jesus as a solution for the burden of our guilt and regret. It's, a, it's turning and returning. It's not just a turning to now, I'm going to live the right way now. Um, 
repentance is not just turning from saying, I'm going to do, I've been doing the wrong thing, I'm going to do the right thing, so now God will accept me. No, it's, a, it's an awareness that my sin has broken my relationship with God, but God has loved me and sought me as his enemy, has made me a part of his new people, so now I desire to do what is right. Now I desire to turn and return to Christ Jesus and my actions and obedience. Those things don't earn us his favor. Those things don't make us part of his new people. They are the way we walk out the truth that we've already been made a part of his people. And so the turning and returning is a turning to Jesus as the only one worth living and dying for. Jesus bled and died on the cross to purchase a people for himself. And he is a jealous God. He's jealous for the purity of his people. And he's jealous that you would be jealous for him. Zealous in your obedience. Zealous in your love. And your spotless, zealous love for him. And it leads to everlasting and eternal joy. What a gift. What a delight. What a precious, precious promise from our God. Just in conclusion, I'd say if you're here this morning, um, whether you're a believer or unbeliever, um, and there is sin that you've been cherishing, um, delighting in. Perhaps there's an area where you've experienced worldly grief. You realize the consequences of your sin and you grieve You have grieved, perhaps, over how that affects your relationships, how that affects you, the things that you've lost because of your sin. But haven't experienced this kind of godly repentance-producing awe in God that turns to Jesus as the only hope and then produces fervent and specific repentance. I would call to you, beg you this morning, repent. (laughs) Trust in Jesus this morning. He is sufficient and enough for your sin. Perhaps it's it's, it's been decades. Perhaps this is something uh, where you have wrestled for years and years and years. You've just given up. Maybe like the Corinthians, you've let go of the rope and you said, you know what? In this area, there's just not going to be change. Uh, I'm just going to have to let that one go. Uh, And that's not going to change until Christ returns. Let me challenge you this morning. That is not the way God looks at our sin Uh, And that is not the way that he wants his people to respond to their sin. We are to be a people who are zealous and fervent for repentance all the rest of our lives. And if you've been a Christian for 20, 30, 40 years, and there's an area of sin that was part of your life when you became a Christian, it's part of your life now, let us not grow weary and let us not grow uh, complacent with that sin and just say, well, it's just never going to change. It is God who gives repentance and godly grief, and he can give you repentance even in that area, even today. Our God is sufficient. His, his grace and mercy, the power of his repentance and his gift of godly grief doesn't have an expiration date. That once you break the seal on salvation, that starts to go bad over time. No, this is, this is lasting and enduring. It is imperishable. And today it's sufficient for you. And if there is sin in your life that you've grown complacent for, I pray this morning would be a morning of, of, of grief over that sin, fresh godly grief that leads to repentance and leads to joy in salvation without regret. There's no need for you to live in shame over this sin. There's no need for you to live in regret, constantly mourning over what's happened, over the godly, the physical consequences of your sin. No, grieve because it's grieved God and then repent and receive grace. There is mercy for you. There is power to change. Our God is a jealous God and he is jealous for you in this area as well. I pray you would turn this morning. I pray you would experience the gift of repentance that you might rejoice and that we all might rejoice at God's work in your life. It's his mercy, it's his grace, it's his kindness. And it's for believers. It's for those who have never trusted before. Would you turn and trust in Jesus today? There's no sin in your life that's too big for him. There's nothing you've done that's, that's made you unacceptable to him that God's mercy cannot cover it and wrap it up. Egypt hated God's people and God saved them. Egypt was enslaving God's people and he said, they're the ones I'm gonna bring repentance to. He wants you this morning, even if you've been an enemy of God, if you've been complacent to him, he wants your heart and your life and your joy in him forever. Oh, church, I want to die together with you that we might live together forever. It's God's kindness. It's God's mercy. Oh, let us be a community. Let us cultivate a community that rejoices in repentance. When we see it in our own lives and when we see it in the lives of those that we love, repentance is a way of life for the Christian church. You understand that? 
You don't mature up to a point where you no longer need to experience godly grief and repentance. This is just part of the Christian walk. If you've been around the church before, I hope you know by now we are all broken and sinful and deeply hypocritical people. And we need Jesus daily. So let us repent and let us rejoice in repentance. Let us embrace it and pursue it and ask for it. Let us pray for it. Perhaps that's what you need this morning. Spend some time praying that God would break you, grieve you, that you might repent and find joy. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your gift of repentance. Thank you for your goodness and kindness that does not leave us in our sin. Oh, Lord, you could could leave us in our rebellion and hatred of you. Lord, you had no need to save Egypt. You could have left them in their rebellion. You could have left Corinth in its rebellion against you and their complacency with sin until they slipped into death eternally and experienced the eternal consequences of their disobedience. Oh, Lord, but in your kindness, you brought them grief, godly grief that led to repentance and salvation without regret. Lord, I pray that you would do that work among us today. I pray that even this morning, you would be grieving hearts, breaking hearts, that they would observe the magnitude of your glory and goodness, your majesty and purity and wonder of the living God that has come to love them and and how great and grievous is their disobedience against you, their complacency with the things that you hate and their tolerating of the things that you despise, Lord, that would break them because of what it says about their relationship to you and they would turn to you in repentance and receive joy and freedom from regret, salvation that's without grief, without despair, without regret, without shame, forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. And may we rejoice this morning. May we sing and rejoice and praise you for your goodness, we pray. I've asked the band to play this song again, Lord, from sorrows deep I call. And I wonder if this morning perhaps some of you need to do a work of repentance. You may need to spend this time singing on your knees, sitting in your chair with your head bowed and doing a work with the Lord, confessing honestly to God where you've been complacent with what he hates, where you've let go of the rope and asking God for true, deep sorrow that leads to fervent, zealous, specific repentance and salvation without regret. And maybe you need to turn somebody here who you've wronged with your sin and and, and confess, or, or a brother or sister, and confess and ask for prayer. Uh, this is a perfect time to do that. And for the rest, I would, would say, let us, let us sing this together and ask God to continue to break us, continue to bring us repentance and joy and salvation without regret. Verse 2 of this song says, Storms within my troubled soul, questions without answers. On my faith these billows roll. God be now my shelter. Are there billows buffeting your faith? Maybe this morning you're doubting. But he says, Why are you cast down, my soul? Hope in God who saves you. When the fires have all grown cold, cause his heart to praise you. Let's put our hope in God this morning, our rock, that we might praise him and sing through the raging storm because he's the God of our salvation. Amen.